G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Today we have a special guest on the show. His name is Evan Minton and he is the man behind Cerebral Faith Ministries, a ministry that now incorporates a website, a blog, a podcast and a YouTube channel, all devoted to an intelligent approach to Christian apologetics. Welcome to the show, Evan. Thanks for having me on. Um, hopefully I didn't miss anything. Did I, did I cover all your avenues there? Yeah, yeah. You covered it all pretty well. Excellent. All right. Yeah, so for listeners who haven't heard of your work, perhaps you could tell us a little more about what you do and why and maybe explain that term apologetics for those who aren't sure what that means. Yeah, apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means defense. And where it is found in Scripture is 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, yet do so with gentleness and respect. The Bible tells us to give an apologia for our faith. When someone asks us why we believe what we believe, we are to give a reasoned defense. And you can see the apostles doing just that, and particularly Acts 17, in which Paul does apologetics in two different ways with the Jews. Uh, He reasons from the scriptures with them, showing how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. And then with the pagans in Athens, he uses more philosophical argumentation, doesn't really rely on scripture that much because he knows they don't they don't care about the Old Testament. But his message is the same. God created the world and uh, he sent his son Jesus for us and he rose from the dead. And and it was that part uh, that the resurrection that got a lot of the Athenians uh, upset because they didn't they didn't believe in the they didn't believe resurrection was possible they didn't want it they followed uh aristotle who uh, they they thought the, the 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 body was a prison and they wanted to escape from that but fortunately some you know you read the passage some stick around and they wanted to uh you know they wanted to hear more from paul and uh so that's an example of apologetics in the bible um today uh over the over the several centuries since uh, Paul and Peter lived, um, we've had several arguments for the existence of God and, and different approaches to establishing biblical reliability and authority uh, developed that the apostles would not have known about, um, like the Kalam argument and the ontological argument um, formulated by uh, Al-Ghazali and um, um, St. Anselm, respectively. But the the mission is still you know is still the same it's give it it's give a reasons to believe that christianity is is true and reasonable yeah right i'm really glad you touched on acts 17 that's actually something that i spoke about when i opened this podcast series uh, in talking about how paul addresses the uh the the greeks there at mars hill uh the areopagus and what I was sort of aiming at with with that as an introduction is that while Paul does speak in very general terms and sort of quotes their own poets rather than the uh, Hebrew poet who uh, wrote Genesis 1, I, th- I think there's certainly some allusions there that bring us back to creation. And that's why in, in this podcast series where I'm covering the the uh, the primeval history. I wanted to start with creation and start with uh, Genesis one and going through there, 
So we can see a little bit of not just the Hebrew, but the, the general worldview of, uh, of creation. And uh, so you, you do a lot of work with apologetics and stating a, a case for defending uh, faith in Christ. So yeah, let's let's talk about Jesus. Let's let's talk about how we can trust uh, what the Scripture says about Jesus in terms of uh, his reality and historicity and all the things that are said about him in the in the Scriptures. How do we know that he was real, uh, that he that he was God, and uh, that he's paved the way uh, for us to experience eternal life? There's a there's a whole lot of evidence, and uh, I'm just going to briefly touch upon uh, some of the reasons now. But if your listeners are interested, I've got a 12-part video series on the Cerebral Faith YouTube channel, Cerebral Faith, that goes in uh, in depth into the historical evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus. That That's just how much there is. Um, so, obviously, I'm going to be really selective uh, here on your show. But if they want to, if they if they want to go more in depth, that's a place that uh, I can point them. Uh, it's, I, I designed it to be sort of like a course, but it's free and it's on YouTube. Um, the way the the resurrection of Jesus, there are, are two general approaches to it. There's the minimal facts approach, and there's the reliability approach. Uh, I favor the minimal facts approach because. Generally speaking, it's faster to get through. The, the reliability approach is very cumulative, um, and so it takes longer to unpack. Um, Jesus, uh, everyone agrees in New, New Testament scholarship, ancient historians, that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Uh, he obviously was a Jewish man, so he believed and taught that the Old Testament was the divinely inspired Word of God. Now, who would be in a better position to know that the Old Testament is the inspired word of God, if not God himself? It, so if Jesus claimed to be God and then he died and r rose from the dead, that is pretty good evidence that he was telling the truth. That means that uh, if, if God raised Jesus from the dead, then God put his stamp of approval on Jesus's ministry uh, and on his, his claim to be divine and on his other claims about spiritual realities. So that gets you the Old Testament, and it can also get you the, the trustworthiness of the New Testament, it can be argued, because Jesus pretty much handpicked the writers of the New Testament. You know, the Apostle Peter was his number one apostle. He appeared to, to Paul on the road to Damascus. But uh, how do we know that Jesus... Uh, rose from the dead. Well, the minimal facts approach, there's two criteria for something to be a minimal fact. It has to be nearly universally accepted by all scholars who study the subject, even skeptical non-Christian scholars, and it has to have a lot of good arguments in its favor. Um, we also use what's called the criteria of authenticity. These are different principles that you can apply to uh, any historical document that you're reading, um, and if that if that principle can be applied to a narrative or a letter, that makes that event or that statement of the person more likely to be true than not. 
Uh, and when you apply these criteria to the New Testament text, just, just treating the New Testament gospels and epistles uh, just, just like you would treat any uh, historical document, like a, a letter from George Washington or, or, or Tacitus, uh, you come up with uh, several facts which I think can only be best explained by the resurrection. Those would be, one, Jesus' death on the, on the cross, uh, his empty tomb, his postmortem appearances to his disciples, his postmortem appearance to Paul, and his postmortem appearance to James. Now, one reason that we know Jesus uh, actually existed and died on the cross is because it meets the criteria of multiple attestation. That means that it is attested in multiple writers, multiple ancient writers who were not depending on each other as a source. So you have Jesus' crucifixion mentioned in authors like Josephus, uh, Fl Flavius Josephus, Cornelius Tacitus, Lucian of Samosata, um, Mara Bar Serapion. Of course, you've got the Synoptic Gospels, the Gospel of John, uh, the Pauline Epistles, um, and the writer and the writer to the Hebrews, whoever he was. So you have at least eight independent sources. Now, what are the odds that eight independent writers are all going to make up the same fictional person? and the same fictitious event, and treat it as though it were historical, as though it were real. It's, it, it's statistically impossible that eight independent writers are all going to make up the same story. Now, Jesus' tomb being empty, that is uh, good. We can believe that that happened because of the criterion of embarrassment. All four Gospels affirm that the first witnesses to Jesus' empty tomb were women. And in that society, women were considered second-class citizens, and their testimony wasn't considered trustworthy. Um, and Josephus, I think hyperbolically, he says that um, they shouldn't even be allowed to witness in a court of law because they're, you know, Josephus says they're habitual liars. So you would not, if you were making up the, 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 the first Easter morning narrative, you would not want to make women your chief witnesses. You would, have someone, you would have a man on the scene, like Peter or John or even Nicodemus, but anyone but a woman. And in fact, uh, Christianity, one of Christianity's critics, Celsius, actually um, used that as an argument for disbelieving the resurrection. He said, hey, all you've got are a bunch of uh, hysterical women. So, um, on the basis of the criterion of embarrassment, which says that if it's embarrassing to the, to the, the, the writer, uh, he probably didn't make it up, um, that's a good reason to believe that the tomb is empty. It's not the only one. I have a whole video that goes through like 10 different arguments, but that's one argument. Uh, the postmortem appearances. Well, the, in 1 Corinthians, we have in the 15th chapter... Uh, a very early creedal tradition. Scholars date this to about five years after Jesus' death. Um, uh, they believe that Paul got it uh, from Peter and James uh, just a few years after his conversion uh, in, the, um, in the, the, the trip to Jerusalem that Paul mentions in Galatians 1 and 2. Now, this is very, very early material, way too early for embellishment to creep in and uh, distort the facts. And uh, it starts off with, Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, 
and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Then he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the disciples. And last of all, Paul adds, he appeared to me also as to one untimely born. Um, now, there are several reasons that scholars believe that this is a creed, one of which is that Paul says, I passed this on to you. What I received, I passed this on to you. Um, and in this early creedal tradition, uh, we have several appearances, appearances to Peter, appearances to the 12, 500 individuals. Um, and so this is early eyewitness material to the postmortem appearances to the to the 12 disciples. Now, that fourth minimal fact, the appearance to Paul, um, you can argue that Paul, you know, from eyewitness testimony, that Paul says he was, uh, a, you know, the, the risen Jesus appeared to him. But some skeptics may object, yeah, well, I mean, anyone can claim anything. I can claim that I saw Santa Claus leaving presents under my Christmas tree last December, uh, you know, that People can people can claim all kinds of stuff. So when I defend the uh, the resurrection, I usually make uh, an ab sort of an abductive argument for Paul's postmortem appearance. Uh, so it's sort of sandwiched in between two facts: the fact that he was a persecutor prior to becoming a Christian, and then he became a, a Christian evangelist who died for his faith. We know he was a persecutor on the basis of embarrassment. He he says in three different epistles how he. Um, he persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it, and that's just not something that you would make up. I mean, imagine someone converting to Judaism and, and then writing a letter to uh, a synagogue telling how he, uh, saying how he used to be a Nazi. He used to be, a, you know, a member of the Nazi party. He, okay, well, yeah, I'm not one anymore, but, I mean, you, you just wouldn't make up such a, a, a horrible past about yourself. Secondly, it's multiply attested, because not only does Paul say, hey, I persecuted the church before I converted, but Luke mentions it as well in the book of Acts. So you've got two independent sources that say that. Now, his martyrdom is independently attested by several of the church fathers. Um, his suffering is independently attested by Paul himself and by Luke in the book of Acts. So the fact that he suffered and died for it means he didn't just claim it, he really believed it. Um, so he had to have seen something on the road to Damascus. Uh, and the fifth fact, the minimal fact, the postmortem appearance to James, it runs along a similar line. Um, James was not a believer prior to Jesus's resurrection. Mark and John independently attest to that fact. John also depicts James in a bad light because um, it, it in John chapter 7, James and his brothers try to goad him into a death trap when they knew that the Pharisees were trying to kill him. He said, hey, show yourself at this feast. No one who wants to be famous hides uh, in secret. So we, we have pretty good reason uh, on cr the criterions of embarrassment and multiple attestation that James was, uh, uh, was a skeptic. And then later, we have multiple sources that affirm, you know, Josephus, for example, uh, records that he was martyred at the hands of the Sanhedrin. So we have really good, in fact, um, critical scholar E.P. Sanders, uh, I think I think it was E.P. Sanders, um, said that uh, even if we didn't have an appearance mentioned to, J uh, to James, we would have to invent one in order to account for his unbelieving days while Jesus was alive and his time of uh, 
you know, being a, a pastor of the Jerusalem church. So that's the that's a brief defense of the five facts that undergird the resurrection. And at this point, it's just a matter of what is the best explanation. Um, and I've seen many, I, I've studied many, many, many naturalistic attempts to try to explain these naturally. Um, they're all utter failures. As I like, I like to say that they ha- they all have more holes in them than a block of Swiss cheese. Yeah, that's great, Evan. Well, thank you for uh, showing us a little of how apologetics works there and, and the reliability of the scriptures. Now, obviously, if people want more information about that sort of thing, you've got plenty of resources online. Tell us a little bit about where they can find you and what you've got. Yeah, all of my resources can be found at www.cerebralfaith.net. Um, there, I've got a whole bunch of blog posts there. You, I, I stream the podcast there. I upload from Anchor, but it's, it's streamed to a lot of different places, including the, the website. And all of my YouTube videos are embedded there. So if you want to, if you want to check out the YouTube series, I've al- I also did a, I also did a series on the resurrection on my podcast and on the blog. Like all three avenues uh, of my ministry have material on the resurrection. You can check that out by going there. But I would recommend most the the, the YouTube series because I think that. That covers the most ground. Um, other than my other than my book, My Redeemer Lives, um, that's like the only free material that covers as much, probably as much ground as the book. All right, excellent. So now we can see why apologetics is an important discipline for those who want to strengthen their faith in Christ by reinforcing it with good solid reasoning and use of available evidence. But sometimes the evidence for things we believe isn't quite so easy to find, uh, like when it comes to the origin of the universe. And when we define creation biblically, we find that it's about causing the cosmos to exist. And existence is defined by function, not by the presence of material. This means that creation is defined by making existing things serve a purpose and work as part of an ordered system and conveying meaning by revealing truth. And that leaves us modern people with a question that ancient people didn't seem to be asking. Where did the material come from? Now, Evan, in your view, does the text of Genesis 1 tell us anything about the origin of the material world or, in the big picture, the universe itself? So in in Genesis 1, I don't see see that it's about material origins at all. I would agree with you and John Walton that it's about functions, not material. Um, And when you look at ancient Near Eastern creation texts, uh, they weren't concerned with the how uh, or when everything came into being. They were concerned with why. so they, you see, you know, the God made this for that and this thing for this purpose and that thing for that purpose. Um, I think we're so concerned with the, the, the how, the material question, uh, because we just take the purpose for granted. Uh, we believe God made everything and he made it for us. And so we just, we're just concerned with uh, figuring out how and when he did it. For them, they the ancient Near Eastern peoples, they, they were concerned primarily with why. And that's why you read in Genesis, for example, God made two great lights. He created the greater light to rule the day, the, the lesser light to rule the night. Uh, and he made the stars also. And he, he, made, he set the two great lights in the, the heavens to, um, to govern the day and the night, the, the functionaries that carry out the function of time. Now, this isn't to say, though, that uh, the Bible doesn't teach creation out of nothing. 
uh, or that God is responsible for the material origins of the universe. It's just to say that you need to go elsewhere than Genesis 1. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's where I've been tracking over the course of this podcast as well. And uh, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. But, you know, that leaves us with the question, you know, how do we know that God actually caused the existence in material terms of the universe? Because in the circles I find myself in occasionally, uh, I can go all over the internet and get into all kinds of weird and wacky places and and see some crazy things. Uh, God is often talked about like he's probably just an ancient person's idea of an alien from another universe and Genesis 1 is just the best they could come up with to explain that. You know, how would you respond to those issues? Maybe we can start with the idea that there are other universes that gave rise to this one or some kind of a multiverse. Yeah, well, uh, I, I don't think there's any evidence for a multiverse. Um, there's there's a lot of problems with that. Um, there's, as far as uh, Origins is concerned, um, if you posit a mother universe to try to get out of the beginning of the uh of the universe you have a you have a problem because there is a non-zero probability at any moment in the the mother the mother universe's idea that uh there's this big universe that's spawning little baby universes uh, well there's a non-zero probability that at any given point that a baby universe will spawn now if the mother universe is static if it's not getting any bigger then given an infinite amount of time, there will be mothers, spawn, uh, baby universes spawned in every single location uh, within the mother universe. Uh, they would, all of the babies would have, will expand and they will become so plenteous and so numerous that they would coalesce and become what looks to be an infinitely large, infinitely old universe, which contradicts the uh, scientific observation that we live in a universe of finite size and age. Now, one way to get out of this problem is to say that maybe the mother universe is is itself expanding. But if the mother universe itself is expanding, then you have this issue of the Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem being applied to the mother universe. The Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem says that any universe which is, on average, in a state of constant expansion, well, the mother universe began to exist. Uh, and it, the atheist who wants to try to appeal to this uh, mother spawning babies to try to get out of uh, a creator, um, he only kicks the problem upstairs. Now, of course, if he wants to posit a grandmother universe, well, you've got the same problem. And you can't have an infinite regression of great-great-great-grandmother universes giving rise to other, you know, to mother universes. Otherwise, because if that's the case, no universe will ever be able to come into existence, and we wouldn't be here. The buck has to stop somewhere. So ultimately, you get to what Thomas Aquinas called an unmoved mover. So even if, even if I were to concede that the Big Bang was not the beginning of all physical reality, there must be a beginning of all physical reality at some point, even if, even if it's farther upstairs. Yeah, right. So the idea of God being the first cause of everything is actually quite logical. Uh, but for a lot of us, it's quite a leap from Genesis doesn't tell us about material origins to 
material origin doesn't need to follow the pattern of Genesis 1's creative narrative. How do we get over that culture shock for those of us who are raised with the literalist interpretation of a six-day origin of the universe and a young Earth? Yeah, well, I'll, there's uh, there's two, there's actually, well, actually three. There's three ways that you, you can know that the universe began to exist, ex nihilo, and that God is responsible for it. One is, uh, well, there's biblical reasons, there's scientific reasons, and there's philosophical reasons. Uh, the biblical reason, uh, you turn to John 1. Uh, John 1, verses 1 to 3 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. What we have here is uh, a passage of, of the Bible saying that, that God existed in the beginning, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and through him all things were made. Now, of course, the question may be asked, well, how do we know that this is made in a material sense and not a functional sense, like gen like in Genesis 1? Because, you know, a lot of us thought that that was uh, material creation. Well, you have, for one thing, you don't have, unlike Genesis 1, you don't really have anything in the passage that would suggest that function, function only, functions are only in view. But also you have a different cultural context. Um, this is the classical period, uh, rather than the uh, ancient Near Eastern period of uh, Moses or uh, Elijah. Um, this this is uh, written, you know, after Aristotle lived. Aristotle uh, was a Greek philosopher and polymath during the classical period in ancient Greece. Um, Aristotle was taught by Plato. He was the founder of Lycium, the para the parapetric school of philosophy. Um, he's, he's called the, the father of, uh, and Aristotle proposed, I, I've brought up an article here called, uh, Aristotle atomic theory model explained. And this, this is what the article says, quote, the, the Aristotle atomic theory model is an idea that doesn't really exist. He didn't believe that the world and the universe were composed of atoms. He taught that there were four elements that composed all materials that could be found on Earth. Those four elements were Earth, water, air, and fire. Aristotle believed that these elements could be observed on their own, but all substances would also be made up of varying levels of all four elements to take on their own unique position. Although Aristotle's atomic theory has been disproven, his observations about the universe helped to send future scientists on a journey that would lead them closer to the truth. End quote. This is from the, the the website healthresearchfunding.org and uh, you you can include a link to the show notes in it uh, if you if you want for people to read more about that but uh, b by the time of Aristotle I, the reason I, I I mentioned Aristotle and and quoted this article is that people were getting interested in material origins and what things were made of and and how things worked so you have a very different cultural context. Uh, than uh, back in the days of Moses or during the the Babylonian exile, whenever whenever you think Genesis one was written, um, the, so the the likelihood of John one uh, being about material origins is far more probable than Genesis one, uh, where you have this cultural context, people writing creation myths all over the place that are only concerned with. Uh, functions. Scientifically, you have good evidence that the universe began to exist. You have uh, Big Bang cosmology and the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics 
shows that the universe is running out of usable energy over time. Um, and eventually, if left on its own, it'll completely run out of energy. Well, if it's running down, then if it were infinitely old uh, and ha- did, wasn't created at some point in the past, uh, it, we would have no energy left. But obviously, we have energy left because my lights are on. Um, philosophically, uh, I've, got, I've dealt with this on my YouTube channel and uh, it, on, in some of my blog posts. There are arguments that pertain to the nature of infinity. Uh, they show that the universe had to begin to exist because an actually infinite number of things cannot exist, and uh, a past eternal universe involves an actually infinite number of things, namely past events. And also, you can't get, you can't form an actually infinite number of things uh, through successive addition. So, uh, I, I used this argument against the the whole higher and higher levels of universes, but you can use it against uh, just an eternal universe in general. If the present event, uh, if the universe were past eternal, the present event could never have arrived because before the present event could arrive, uh, the event before that would have to arrive. And before that event could arrive, the one before it would have to arrive. And before that event could arrive, the one before it would have to arrive and so on back into infinity. No event could ne- could ever arise because each event would have an actually infinite number of events that would have to proceed uh, first. So you do have biblical grounds, you have scientific grounds, and you have philosophical grounds for believing that uh, the universe did begin to exist ex nihilo, um, and you you can believe that God was behind it. You can you can pair the the scientific and philosophical arguments for the beginning of the universe with uh, what is known as the Kalam cosmological argument. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so a biblical faith doesn't require that we necessarily accept what the modern science is telling us, but it sounds like we're faced with a decision: either we stop asking questions beyond what the Bible is affirming. Or we look for explanations through the truth of the world around us, trusting that the God who inspired the scriptures is the same God who made the world we observe. And that's essentially what science is. When we put it that way, there really is no conflict between science and faith when we approach both with sound thinking and responsible study. And the key thing is that we don't interpret the Bible through science. Scientific understanding changes over time, but the word of God remains constant. That's not to say that the science of the biblical authors never goes out of date. I mean, you know, they believe that the hair on your head actually had a reproductive function. (laughs) But uh, the truth claims being made remain constant. And where science stops is when we arrive at facts. Science doesn't go beyond facts and speak about meaning. And I think that's where the Bible comes in at Genesis 1. We, We can see this stuff, but what does it mean? It's when meaning is applied to facts that we find truth and what uh, what god is actually intending to teach us yeah i agree um this is what there are two science faith organizations um they take a little bit of a different perspective you got reasons to believe they're uh they they're an old earth creationist organization and you have biologos they're a theistic evolutionist or or i prefer evolutionary creationist uh, but they both have the they both endorse this uh this analogy or illustration called the two books model. And it, it comes from the, uh, um, comes from a confession whose name escapes me. Uh, <laughs> I, 
I can't remember well, Westminster, I think, uh, where it talks about how God's um, God's creation is before us like an open book. And what reasons to believe in BioLogos say is that since God is the author of both the book of Scripture and the book of nature, when both are properly interpreted, there will be no conflict. Now, there can be conflict in interpretations, um, but there won't actually be any conflict between the book of Scripture and the book of nature. Uh, there will only be apparent conflict because either the scientists went wrong or the uh, biblical scholar went wrong. But when when we get when, when you know when we fix all of our uh, margins of error, uh, there's going to be there's not going to be any conflict. Yeah, that's exactly right, uh, and and that comes down to the nature of God, in that what He says absolutely must happen. That's why He He just speaks and creation responds because there's no conflict between His word and reality, and I think that's what we see borne out when we. Uh, interpret the scriptures, and we interpret the uh, the world around us scientifically. When we get that correct, we find that there's uh, no dispute, no disharmony, because this is all created by a God who uh, cannot lie, who is perfectly trustworthy, and who is worthy of our worship above all else. Amen. Yeah. All right, Evan. Well, it's been a great talk. Uh, I think we'll wrap it up there, but um. Yeah, I'm really pleased with uh, this uh, discussion we've been able to have. I think it's going to help a lot of people just to sort of settle in their minds that uh, as we've been going through Genesis 1 uh, and talking about creation in functional terms, that doesn't necessarily write off the uh, idea of material origins. Uh, we've just got to sort of redirect our focus uh, in order to establish that truth, and we're quite confident that that is a truth we can affirm that god did indeed create the material world uh, as well as assigned function to it and both of those things together uh, give us a great confidence in uh, the reality and the reliability of the trustworthiness of god so uh yeah thanks very much for coming on the show evan and uh spending this time having a having a chat and uh, before we wrap up, uh, you've you've written a few books and stuff like that as well, haven't you? What have you uh, What have you written, and, and what are you working on? Um, right now, I've uh, I've got three three books out. One is uh, the Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and uh, his, his an historical case for the God of Christianity. Um, that book argues uh, does. You know, it answers does the God does God exist and which God exists. You know, uh, answering the atheists who say, "Well, why, do you, why should I believe in Yahweh instead of Thor or Zeus or Athena?" And I show how natural theology—it's sort of a combination of natural theology. Natural theology is just a fancy term for arguments for God's existence uh, and comparative religions. It's ta it's marrying the two to make an argument uh, for the Christian God. I also have a few chapters on the resurrection at the end because I think that's important for establishing, you know, why to believe in Jesus instead of other gods. Um, My Redeemer Lives: Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. That's uh, uh, that goes in in depth into the evidence for Jesus's uh, deity, death, and resurrection. Um, and 
Yahweh's Inferno, why scripture's teaching on hell doesn't impugn the goodness of God. Um, now, a lot of people are going to assume that that's just, uh, that's either arguing for an eternal torment perspective or an annihilationist perspective. It's getting into that debate. And while I do touch upon that, it's really, I only spend three chapters uh, expressing what I believe, you know, the, the three camps, you know, eternal torment, annihilation, and universalism, you know, uh, you know, what, but the book is really just, you know, skeptics, the, the, the doctrine of hell bothers them. They don't know how to reconcile it with the goodness of God. And so I tackle it from a lot of different perspectives. You know, I, I, not, I don't just tackle, I don't just tackle the perspective, uh, the question, you know, infinite punishment for, inf for finite crimes. But I talk about, you know, what about those who have never even heard of Jesus? What does God do with them? How could, how could he be fair to send people to hell if they haven't even heard of Jesus? And what happens to babies who die? And, you know, how should I deal with, you know, if I believe someone I loved went to hell, how should I deal with that? So it, it tackles the problem, I call it the problem of hell, from a variety of different perspectives. It's not just a book that says, oh, the... Um, eternal torment is right or oh annihilation is right or we should become you know or we should become universalists um there's plenty of books that do that already um so i i didn't see fit to just you know i i wanted to do something that i haven't seen done and i haven't seen an apologetic book that tackles hell from multiple different angles most 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 books on hell just deal with oh should we believe it's eternal torment should we believe in conditionalism what should you know um so i i decided to be a bit more broad right very good so uh any any new stuff in the works as far as written materials concerned i don't really have anything in the works but uh, i'm pouring a lot of um creative effort into my youtube channel um trying to get a lot of good um, informative content out on that. I'm trying to uh, schedule a lot of good interviews and, and guests on my own podcast to, uh, you know, provide some edifying content there. Um, but as far as written material is concerned, I just, you know, do the occasional Q&A question of the week on my blog. Okay, well, uh, I think that's about all the time we have. Thanks again for uh, being on the show, Evan. It's been a pleasure. Uh, as as, uh, as before, I uh, I had a good time uh, appearing uh, on the on the other side of the microphone when uh, you had me on your show uh, last year. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, 
please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe to your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.